Welcome, friends. You are listening to the podcast for First Christian Church in Fort Myers, Florida. To learn more, join us online at fccfm.org. It is a blessing to be able to share God's Word with you today. Thanks for joining us. Hey, FCC, so glad all of you are here. We are in week number four of a sermon series called A Faith That Works from the New Testament book of James, a letter written by the half-brother of Jesus to young struggling, displaced Christians. Now we might say the main theme of James's letter is maturity in Christ. That is what it looks like to grow from a newfound faith into a deeply profound faith. From a faith of new belief to a faith that works for every person in every circumstance. And if I was going to create a big idea from the book of James, one of them might be this. A faith that works is one that transforms a broken world into a better world. A faith that works is one that transforms a broken world into a better world. Now, why do I say that? Well, it's because a deeply profound faith, a faith that works, a mature faith is a transformative faith. A faith that works is one that transforms a broken world with broken people into a better world. My grandma Pumpkin, that's what we called her. Her real name was Norma Higgins, but, but she called all of her grandkids Pumpkin, and so we called her Grandma Pumpkin. And she was actually my great-grandmother. She was born in the early 1900s. And sometimes I think of all the incredible, beautiful, world-changing things she saw in her life, like the rise of the automobile and the first flight and the invention of radio and television, the civil rights movement, the globalization of travel, the space race, men on the moon, modern medicine, When she was born, they were still using horse and buggy. When she died in 1999, the internet was widely available. She saw the advancement of society like no one had ever seen in history, and those are some incredibly beautiful things, but she also saw the brokenness of our world in such profound ways. She saw horrible things. In fact, some of the most terrible things anyone has ever seen. She was a child during... World War I, she was a teen during the Spanish flu pandemic. She was in her 20s when the stock market crashed. She raised her kids through the Great Depression. Around 35 years of age, she saw World War II with the the advent of atomic weaponry. She lived through the Korean War, the Cold War, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Vietnam War, the First Gulf War. She experienced depressions, recessions, cultural revolutions, pandemics, and problems like the world had never seen before. She experienced a lot of beautiful things but she still saw the brokenness of our world in significant ways. As long as I can remember, she attended church every Sunday and she maintained a deeply profound faith. And when she passed away, she was ready to go. She simply covered her mouth and stopped eating. And she said, I'm done. In the weeks leading up to her passing, she had fallen, she had broken her hip, she had no real desire to fight her way back from injury. She was this beautiful person 
in a broken body. And she'd seen enough and she was ready to see Jesus. You know, we live in a beautiful yet broken world. And we are surrounded by beautiful yet broken people. And sometimes the brokenness of our world cries out in such a way to drown out all of the beauty. And I believe it is human nature to marvel at the tension, to even struggle with the tension between all the beauty and all the brokenness. We live in that tension every single day. And as Christ followers, we often find ourselves asking, what do we do with that? The original readers of James's letter were living in that same tension. They were relatively new believers in Jesus. They had become Christians after hearing convincing testimony that Jesus had risen from the dead. And as new believers, they shared in the excitement of seeing the explosive growth of the very first church, the Jerusalem church, in the years following Jesus' ascension. They saw miracles performed, lives changed, the sick healed, the hungry fed. They saw prisoners set free. They saw their church grow from about 120 people to more than 5,000 men. That's not counting the women and children, upwards of 20,000 people in a handful of years. And it was this big, beautiful mess where people were meeting together every day and their movement was very popular with the masses and people were even selling their possessions whenever necessary to take care of all the needy members. In fact, Acts 4.34 says there were no needy persons among them. Not because everybody was rich, but because they all generously took care of those in need. And the world around them was being transformed by their faith community. But the influence of powerful people was also being threatened by these new Christians. And the ruling class began to attack and persecute the church, beating and killing the believers. And it shattered and it scattered the church. And so these new believers, they were driven out of their homes in Jerusalem. They became refugees in new communities throughout Palestine. Meanwhile, their leaders, Peter, James, and John, stayed in Jerusalem to pick up the pieces. But even in these new communities, these new Christians were not safe because the ruling class sent investigators and emissaries to hunt them down as they were trying to establish their new lives in these new places. And these new Christians were wondering, how do we live for Jesus now? In these new places, in the midst of this broken world, who are we supposed to be and how are we supposed to live? And remember, they didn't have access to their spiritual leaders anymore because their spiritual leaders had stayed back in Jerusalem. And of course, they didn't have FaceTime or Zoom calls or even snail mail. So who would answer their questions? Who would disciple them? Who would help them grow to maturity in their faith? How would they be transformed to becoming more like Jesus? And how would they transform the world. Enter James, the younger brother of Jesus, biological son of Mary and Joseph, the primary leader of the Jerusalem church. Knowing he could no longer disciple all these people hands-on, he wrote a letter to be hand-delivered 
A letter that would be copied and distributed repeatedly so that, so that many of those displaced Christians, as many as possible, would have access to his words of wisdom and his instruction. And this letter became very likely the first book in our New Testament. And what James is doing with this letter is he's telling these new believers how to live in this beautiful yet broken world all around them, how to grow as Christ's followers, how to transform the world, and how to be transformed themselves. How do they go from a newfound faith to a deeply profound faith? From a faith of new belief to a transformative faith that works for everyone in every situation and circumstance. And so the book of James offers insight into these questions. Now, in the book of James, there are five chapters. There are 108 verses, but there are only seven topics. There are only seven themes. All 108 verses go back and forth and back and forth addressing one of the following seven themes. Number one, suffering with hope. We see that topic addressed three times in the letter. Number two, searching for wisdom, addressed twice in the letter. Number three, seeking justice, particularly as it pertains to justice for the poor, addressed numerous times in the letter. Number four, watching our words, addressed perhaps more than anything else in the letter. Number five, pursuing purity. Number six, living without judgment. And number seven, staying humble. You see, a faith that works, a faith that transforms the broken into the beautiful, a maturing faith in Jesus suffers with hope, searches for wisdom, seeks justice, watches our word, words, pursues purity, lives without judgment, and stays humble. And we've talked about many of these themes in the past several weeks, and today we want to talk about humility. And we want to talk about humility today as an economic situation, as a state of repentance and grace, and as submission to God's will. So let's begin in James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open those up. You got those Bibles at, Bible apps, get those out. James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, where we see humility not as a state of mind, but as an economic situation. Here's what it says. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. You know, we often think of humility as a state of mind, but in fact, Often throughout the Bible, it's, it's an economic situation. It's kind of like when we celebrate someone's success by saying, and she came from humble beginnings, which means she wasn't born with a silver spoon in her mouth. It had to come from a long way down the economic ladder. Very often in the Bible, humility is seen as an economic situation rather than a state of mind. If you were poor, you were living in a humble state. If you were rich, you weren't. And clearly that is a theme James picks up on throughout his letter. 
I remember when I was in elementary school, I was probably second or third grade. My parents threw this huge birthday party for me and they invited every single student in my elementary class to our home and almost all of them came. And for most of them, it was the very first time they'd ever been to our farm and, and we had horses they could ride and we had ATVs they could ride and we had 80 acres with, with ponds and, and a river we could fish and we had cattle and we had a pretty nice home as well. And, and all of a sudden, my friends, the ones who had never been to our home before, were like, Matt, you didn't tell us you were rich. What do your parents do? And I remember feeling so much pride because this thought had never occurred to me before. And, and of course, after the party, I asked my parents if we were, we were rich, and they, they laughed out loud. And they were like, mm, no. I mean, we have, a, we have a nice little farm, but we're not rich. It actually takes everything we've got to keep it. And I remember feeling totally bummed out. You, you might even say I felt humiliated. Because after feeling that gratifying feeling of pride that I'd only felt a few hours earlier, it felt like it was just all stripped away and taken away from me and one conversation with my parents and my pride turned to this feeling of shame, perhaps humiliation. Well, here James tells the humble, that would be the economic poor, to take pride in their high position and he tells the rich to take pride in their humiliation or their low position, which all seems like kind of a strange thing to say now, doesn't it? Sometimes we just read over these things and we don't think about them, but while touting the importance of humility, he tells each of the two groups to take pride in something. Huh. Clearly there's a little wordplay going on here. James is speaking tongue in cheek in these verses, but he tells the rich that they're going to be humiliated or made humble because all their wealth is going to pass away. Their stuff is temporary, but what the poor have is eternal, and what the poor have is trust in God. And so James is, and let's be honest, James is being stereotypical here. I find it ironic. He says, don't judge. And it's like he's judging struggling with his own flesh, but James is, is saying the rich are developing their assets and the poor are developing their faith. As such, the poor are forced to trust in God because they're living day to day. And so I think is, well, here, most of us are doing pretty well. We ask the question, what does that mean for the rich? What does it mean for those who are not poor? What does it, does it mean it's wrong? Well, no. This is actually another example of James using hyperbole, which he does a lot. We learned about that last week. Hyperbole is overstatement to make a strong point. And the point here is a warning to the rich that they can overly depend on their abilities and their assets, their plans and their dreams, rather than God or their futures. And so it's a call for them to live in such a way that they are compelled to live by faith, not by sight. And if you read all of James, you see that radical generosity is the way the rich can be compelled to live by faith. In a broken world, faith in Jesus works to bridge the division between rich and poor through radical generosity. The rich remain humble and create equality through generosity and sharing. That's what we see about humility in James chapter one. Let's move on to James chapter four, verses six 
through 10, where we see humility as a state of repentance and grace. Here's what it says. But God gives us more what? God gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor or gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. You see, pride is when we see brokenness. And our first response is to judge it. And our first response is to condemn it. Pride is when we see the sin in our world and we assume it's everybody else who's doing it. Pride is when we assume our ways are the right ways and everybody else's ways are the wrong ways. Humility is when we see brokenness and we grieve it and we give grace to it like God does. Humility is when we see a wrongdoing in our world and we acknowledge we do lots of wrongdoing ourselves. Humility is when we see the sinfulness in our world and we grieve our part in it. Humility isn't when we see the brokenness of our world and say, man, those people need to repent. Humility is when we say we are broken and we need to repent. Not just when we're pointing out everyone else's shortcomings, but when we're reflecting on our own. Repentance is when we grieve our own brokenness and we seek what's better, and that's what James is calling us to here. And so our response to brokenness isn't judgment, it's repentance and grace. That's how humble people respond to their own brokenness and to the broken world. And so we see humility isn't just a state of mind, it's a state of grace and a state of repentance. And lastly, let's go to James 4, 13 through 17, where we see humility as submission to God's will. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this city or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if this is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes and all such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. If it's pride to have our own ambitions without regard for others, then humility is submission to God's will for the good of others. It's a recognition that we are here today and gone tomorrow, but that God is up to something more eternal. It's our willingness to yield our own desires and dreams, which are temporary, to God's desires and dreams, which are eternal. And so humility, uh, humility is submission to God's will over our own desires. Now, a question that Christians often ask, and, and if you are new to Christianity, if you're new to the faith, maybe you haven't heard this question before, but if you've been around for a while, you've heard people say, I wonder what God's will is for my life. Ever heard that before? Ever asked that question before? Like, what is God's will for me as if it's vague and hard to figure out? 
We make it more difficult than we need to. It's not vague, it's not hard to figure out. First of all, God's will is whatever is in the Bible that God is telling us to do in our context. Like that's God's will for us. Second of all, God's will is for us to find and follow Jesus. That is God's will for every single person that you would find and follow Jesus with your life. Say, well, what about all the things the Bible doesn't speak to? Or what about the things Jesus didn't talk about or he didn't live out? How then do we know God's will? And the incredible thing is James gives us the perfect answer to this question in verse 17. He says, anyone who knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. When God places an opportunity in your life for you to do good, he hopes you will. He wills it. He wants you to do it. God's will for you is to do the good you ought to do today, today. While you are going about your work, you do the good you ought to do today. While you're with your kids, you do the good you ought to do today. While you're hanging out with your friends, while you're engaging in your hobbies, you do the good you ought to do today. When, you, when you're developing your business or, or developing your career, you do the good you ought to do today. When you are at church, you do the good you ought to do that day. When you're home at night, you do the good you ought to do then as well. God's will is not some fantastical, mystical, hard to figure out plan for your life. It's simply doing the good you ought to do today. The humble person won't worry about that big thing tomorrow, but will do the good he or she ought to do today. And sometimes pride makes us think that God must have this big, grandiose plan for us to be the hero or the key player or the mover and shaker in some big scheme, but mostly God's will is just for us to do the good we ought to do today. Humility says, God, use me no matter how small my role may be in your plans. And so humility isn't so much a state of mind. Rather, humility is an economic situation. And humility is repentance and grace in the face of all the brokenness of our world. And humility is submission to God's will when it goes against our own desires. And I have to wonder, What do you think would happen in our broken world if all the followers of Jesus, and oh, by the way, there are billions of them, what would happen if all the followers of Jesus embraced a posture of humility instead of pride? What if all the followers of Jesus dispensed with all the, well, let's be the the greatest at this or the greatest at that or, or let's make this or that great again and embrace a spirit of let's be humble. Let's, let's ask, act humbly. Let's live out Christ's humility. What would happen in our world if the Christ followers embraced humility instead of pride? Remember how the, Humble respond to the poor, radical generosity. 
What would happen in our world if the rich would humbly respond to the poor with radical generosity rather than judgment? Do you think it would change anything? And how do humble people respond to sin? We just read it. Repentance and grace, not judgment. What would happen in our world if, if Christ's followers would see the sin in our world, the brokenness in our world, and we would grieve it and we would acknowledge our own participation in it and our own brokenness rather than judge others? You think anything would change? And how do humble people face an unclear future? We just read it. By doing good deeds today. And so what if we all said, you know, I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future, and I'm just going to do the good I ought to do today. What would happen? What if we all determined that we were going to get up every single day and we were going to pray, God, when I see something good that needs to be done, just give me the ability to do it. I see someone struggling, I pray with them. I see someone hungry, I feed them. I see someone who's broken, I encourage them. I see someone lost in sin, I love on them. I see someone very different than me, I'm kind to them. Do you think that would change anything? Oh, maybe you're a cynic. I tend to be cynical myself. You might even say, well, that wouldn't change the world. And maybe you're right. But it might change the people around you. And it most certainly will change you. And the thing that I think about is, like what if just us, like our church family, there are about 1,500 of us that gather live or online every weekend. What if the 1,500 people who attended FCC would just say, we commit to this kind of life, this kind of humility, I really do believe it could transform our community. And I just think about our state. In the state of Florida, there are millions of people saying they follow Christ. What if the Christ followers in Florida would all commit to this kind of life, this kind of humility? I believe it could transform our state. And what if all the Christ followers in America, and there are tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of us, would commit to this kind of life, to this kind of humility, it could transform our country, it could transform our politics, our media, our entire tone and tenor of our nation from division to unity, from judgment to grace, from pride to humility. And what if all the Christ followers in our world would commit to this kind of humility. It really could change the world. A faith that works is one that transforms a broken world into a better world through Christ-like humility shown in radical generosity, grace for the broken, and a willingness to simply do the good we ought to do today. That's what Christ-like humility looks like. Radical generosity, grace for the broken, and doing the good we ought to do today. 
You know, there are two things that I used to pray for over the years that I stopped praying for. Two things. I don't know what they are. Number one is patience. Someone already called it. And the other is humility. I used to pray for those things. You wanna know why I stopped praying for those things? Well, why don't you pray for those things and see what happens? Pray for patience. Watch God bring a lot of things into your life to test your patience. No thank you. Pray for humility, same thing. Watch God bring a lot of things into your life to humble you. And we all say, no thank you. (laughs) But seriously, and this is our takeaway for today. In your daily time with God, ask God to develop a spirit of humility within you. That you would respond to your own brokenness the brokenness in our world with radical generosity, repentance and grace, and a desire to simply do the good we ought to do today. You do that, seek that spirit of Christ-like humility and watch what God does to transform the broken things in our world into beautiful things. James chapter four, if you read all of it, we didn't, first few verses especially is very clear. The brokenness in our world is a result of pride more than anything else. And so let us, as disciples of Jesus, be humble. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much that you love us so much that you have created us, that you have called us, you have saved us, that you have empowered us, and that you continue to use us despite our sins and struggles, despite our pride. God, we confess to you that we so often come to you for our own good but we also need to come to you for the good of others. That a faith that transforms the world is a humble faith in your son and our savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name, amen. We pray this message has been a blessing to you. If we can pray for you or encourage you in any capacity, please let us know at fccfm.org.